Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, our text this morning begins in verse 1 and extends to verse 17. As we finish the first 12 chapters of John's gospel, this, this section that scholars sometimes call the book of signs, uh, we've entered into this second book, chapters 13 to 21, sometimes called the book of glory, uh, and especially this particular section, the upper room discourse, chapters 13 to 17, the longest uh, block of Jesus' teaching in any of the four gospels. Uh, we find it all here. Uh, but the the scene opens uh, not just with teaching, but with a kind of enacted parable. Uh, Jesus starts these scenes with something that's vitally important for his disciples to know, uh, not just for these 12 in the upper room, but for you and me. He wants to tell us something that sometimes we might doubt or might be unknown to us, namely, he loves you. That, that's what he wants you to know. That's really what this scene is all about. It's about love that's unknown, and yet known as we come to know Jesus Christ. But in order to see that, but more believe that, as we've already confessed this morning in the statement of faith, we need the Holy Spirit. And so let's pray together and ask Him to help us. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do come uh, to what you particularly use in our lives uh, as an effectual means of your redemption, uh, the reading and especially the preaching of Holy Scripture. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come, that you would open our eyes of faith this morning, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Lord, may we not only think about the idea of your love, but may we know it and experience it. Grant us this grace, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. 
That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many of you may remember Mark Twain's book, The Prince and the Pauper. Uh, If so, you remember that the the action really centers on a a chance meeting between Tom Canty, who was a young pauper, uh, a poor uh, child, uh, and Prince Edward, the future Edward VI, the son of Henry VIII. Prince Edward takes a liking to Tom, Uh, Not just because he's fascinated by Tom's adventures as a pauper, but but he's struck by by the likeness they bear to one another. Tom and, and Edward could have been twins, and so Edward convinces Tom to swap clothes with him. Edward would dress himself in Tom Canty's pauper clothes, uh, and Tom Canty would take on Prince Edward's royal robes. and then the prince disappears. He heads off to live Tom's life. And what he discovers is that, is that Tom Canty's life was not nearly as romantic as it sounded when they were talking. Uh, the ruffian boys mocked him. Tom's father, father collars him. And he ends up spending the night with the tramps uh, and the beggars. And every time he tries to defend himself by insisting that he's actually Prince Edward, the Prince of Wales, all of those poor men and boys mocked him and jeered him, and and honestly, they deemed him to be somewhat crazy. You see, Edward didn't take well to becoming a pauper because he knew his true identity. He was the Prince of Wales. He He was Edward, the future King of England, standing there. How different that was from Jesus the great king. Central to our faith is the reality that that Jesus, the king of glory, he he became the servant of sinners. This one who had uh, all the wealth and all the power and all the glory, he became poor for our sakes. And and how was it possible for for Jesus, the true king of the world, the the true king of glory, the one through whom all things were made that were made, how how was it possible for him to endure such humiliation, for him to become a pauper, to, to, to condescend, to become obedient to death, even death on the cross? How was it possible? It was possible because he loves you. He, he loves you. That's why he came from heaven to earth. That's why the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. That's why he would lay down his life for the sheep. It's what causes us 
to sing, my, my song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Our passage this morning tells us about this love unknown. It's one of the things that jumps out right at the beginning of the passage. It's there in verse 1. When, when, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, there it is, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. He loved them, in other words, to the uttermost, uh, to, to love's full measure. And he loved them all the way to the end of his mission, to the cross and to the tomb, and then beyond that. But, but Jesus didn't just love these 12. He loved you. That's, that's why he endures such humiliation. That's why he condescends. That's why he becomes the suffering servant. And that's what this moment really is all about here in the upper room. Though his love might have been unknown to the disciples and perhaps might be unknown to you and me, there were a few things that Jesus knows. It's the other striking thing about the opening of this passage, is that twice John tells us that Jesus knew certain things. There in verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And then again, verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus knew certain things. Well, what did Jesus know? And, and what, is, what is his knowledge? What does this knowing have to do with his love for you and me? Well, first of all, Jesus knew about his mission. He knew that this, this hour for which he had come was now here. That that as this scene opens in the upper room, he's just a few short hours from taking up the cross and bearing it along the Via Dolorosa and going outside of the city and having, that, and having his hands nailed to the cross and his feet nailed to the cross and being raised up on the place that they called Skull, that we know as Golgotha. He's just a few short hours away from his mission being accomplished of dying in the place of sinners. And yet his mission was more than that. Not just to die, but also to be raised. Not just to die and be raised, but also to receive his glory back once again. That's what John tells us. He tells us that he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And again, that he had come from God and was going back to God. The full mission the mission that was Jesus's all the way to the end was that he might receive his glory back once again. The, the, the Jesus of whom the seraphim sang, holy, 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 in, in Isaiah's vision that we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 6, was he was going to receive that glory again, though he had set it aside for a time in order to accomplish this mission. Oh, Jesus's mission Yes, to die for the people, to die for you and me, to be raised for our justification, but also to return to his rightful place of glory. That mission that Jesus had, he knew it was about to be accomplished. That in his cross and in the empty tomb, his glory would be seen, 
but this full glory as the God-man would be received once again as he returned to his rightful place as the prince, the king of glory. But Jesus knew not just about his mission, he also knew about his authority. You see, John tells us here in verse 3 that, that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus had authority over everything. And he, he knew this, but what did that mean? Why was that important? Well, it certainly meant because Jesus has all authority that nothing that, that had happened or was going to happen to him in the next few hours would take him by surprise. After all, Jesus knew about Judas's treachery. He, he, he talked about it back in John chapter 6 when he said that one of you is a devil. It comes up even in this passage when he says not all of you are clean. He, he knew about Judas's treachery. He knew that Judas would be the one who would betray him, who would carry out the devil's own work as a liar and as a destroyer and as a thief. But he was in control. It was under his authority. Jesus also knew that he would, he would lay down his life for the sheep. He knew that he was heading to the cross and that the, the Jews and the Romans would conspire together to crucify him, to put him to death. And it didn't take him by surprise. He was in control. It was under his authority. And he knew too that he would rise from the dead. He had told us that in John chapter 10. He had said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. You see, Jesus was in control. He, it was all under his authority. That's what Jesus knew. He knew that he had come to accomplish his mission and that mission would be finally brought to fruition when he received his glory once again through the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension back to the Father. But, but he also knew that he had all authority and nothing that was going to happen, both up to that moment, but especially after, was going to take him by surprise. Jesus knew that. Do you? Do you know that, in fact, Jesus has all authority, that everything's under his control, that nothing takes Jesus by surprise? Listen, you need to. There is no free-ranging molecule in the entire universe. It's all under Jesus's control. There is no stray bullet. There is no wayward cancer cell. There is no plunge in the stock market that can take Jesus by surprise. He has all things in his hands. But listen, the hands that hold the world, the hands that hold your life, they're nail-pierced. They bear the marks of Jesus' love for you, which means you can trust him. You can trust that Jesus' mission will be accomplished in your life. You can trust that Jesus' authority will be well used. You can trust him because he loves you and he loves you to the uttermost and he loves you to the end. But these things that Jesus knew 
about his mission, about his authority. They, they actually motivate what he does. Because what happens next is he does something stunning, something remarkable. He, he washes his disciples' feet. And, and the way that John describes this is beautifully intentional. These, these strong verbs that he uses here, starting in verse 4, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Everything about what Jesus does here, the intentionality, but also the very action of this this condescension is stunning. It's stunning because of, of when this happened. I mean, the typical time you would have had your feet washed in the ancient world would have been when you arrived to the house. Um, the, the host's servant, or if the host was poor, the host himself would greet you at the door, and there'd be a water basin there, and he would make sure to wash your feet so you didn't tra- track in the, the dust and the grime of the street into the house, and then you would be admitted into the house. But this doesn't apparently happen at the beginning. No, this actually happens after the meal has already started, after everyone's already gathered around the table. Why is that important? Well, there's actually a parallel here. Remember in the previous chapter, in John chapter 12, there's another meal. Uh, the text tells you that the meal was actually thrown in, in Jesus' honor, but, but likely they were celebrating Lazarus too. And the scene gets set. Lazarus and Jesus and others are reclining at the table. Martha's in her place serving. And in the middle of the meal, what happens? Remember? Mary comes. And she has this perfume. And she breaks it open. And she anoints Jesus' feet. And it's as though in the midst of this scene, a spotlight comes and is shining on on Mary and Jesus in this anointing of the feet and wiping his feet. And Jesus says, this is to prepare me for my burial, is to prepare me for my death. Next chapter, this scene, same thing. It's in the middle of the meal. Jesus gets up. He takes out his, off his outer garments. He puts on a, a servant's towel and he begins to wash their feet And it's though the spotlight is shining on what Jesus is doing, what he's modeling, and what his message is. It's stunning when this happens. But it's also stunning because of what is happening. The host is washing their feet, which in and of itself, if the host was poor, may not have been strictly unusual, but it's particularly unusual because the host is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is washing their feet. And, and the disciples don't know how to react to this. Not simply because they've never seen Jesus do this, but remember what they've already said about Jesus. They've said he is master. They've said he is Lord. Uh, Peter in John chapter 6 calls him the Holy One of God. And the Holy One of God was washing their feet. It was utterly inconceivable. How how in the world could Jesus do this? It's what explains Peter's reaction. Uh, Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
In the original language, it actually comes out a little bit stronger. It's almost incredulous. Lord, you wash my feet? Peter can't process this. He's incredulous that, that Jesus, the Holy One of God, would be washing his feet. It, it's a kind of incredulous statement that reminds us of in the other Gospels, where when Jesus was telling his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be crucified and then rise from the dead, Peter so doesn't understand what this all means, he pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. That's similar to what's going on here. Jesus, you can't do this. Do you wash my feet? And in response, Jesus says, no, you don't understand what's happening now. You'll understand later. And Peter insists, you shall never wash my feet. You'll never do it. Which draws a warning from Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus warns Peter And he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I don't serve you in this way, if I don't take upon myself this servant's role, if I don't cleanse you, if I don't make you clean by my own blood, if if you don't receive my life in place of yours, and Peter, you don't belong to me. You're not mine, which of course draws, um, being Peter, the opposite reaction. Well then, Lord, wash everything about me. Wash my head, my hands, uh, everything about me. Uh, To which Jesus then says in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not everyone. You see, Peter is assured by Jesus that he was already clean because Jesus had chosen him had put his love upon him, had drawn him to himself, had had brought him to confess who Jesus was, uh, and his final cleansing would be accomplished just a few short hours later at the cross. But but Peter needed to see how great Jesus' love was. Jesus needed to show him uh, through this enacted parable so that Peter and the other disciples, so that you and me, might, might come to understand, even if we don't understand in the moment, which is why Jesus goes on to explain what it all means. After Jesus finished washing his disciples' feet, he took off his towel, he put his robes back on, and, and then he, he told the disciples what it all meant for them, but not just for them, but also for us, what it means for us. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. In other words, this was an enacted parable to show the disciples how they needed to live going forward. Jesus, their master, Jesus, their Lord, the Holy One of God, the Messiah, he took the place of the servant. Could his followers do anything less? Now, Jesus wasn't proposing that his followers literally wash feet. He's he's not offering here a third sacrament. He's not establishing this as as a regular church practice. Rather, Jesus was modeling 
how are we to live with one another? We, we are to engage with one another by way of service, to lay aside our own glory, to take off our robes of glory, to take off our, our position and our prominence and our, our privileges and to, and to serve one another, to serve the least, to serve, to serve the lost. What does that look like? Well, within our church, there's, there's many, many ways we have to take off our, our robes of glory and to bend down and, and to serve. Just one example among many. It's no secret, I think, to many of you that, that we have struggled now for, for several years to, to find and recruit volunteers for our children's ministry. Um, we struggle with Sunday school teachers. We struggle with children's church workers. Uh, we struggle with VBS folks. Um, it is very difficult to find those who will take off their robes of glory and bend down to serve our little ones. Even though we, we desire to be a people, as we've already said in Psalm 145, which began our service, to tell the next generation, to commend the works of God to this next generation. We, we might say, well, I've already done my time serving these children. Let somebody else do it. Well, that may be so. But I do wonder if it's not an opportunity for us to, to take off our robes of glory and to, and to bend down to serve these who are, in fact, the future worshipers and leaders of, of this place. How might we invest by serving well the, the little ones among us? Oh, similarly, we have this fabulous ministry that happens here on Friday nights once a month called Recess. Um, Recess is a ministry to special needs families, and um, families are able, parents are able to drop off their special need child, but also their siblings, uh, for an evening, a Friday evening, so that they can go and do errands without all of their kids. Uh, and meanwhile, we have volunteers here to care well uh, for these children. It's another opportunity to, to take off robes of glory and to bend down to serve those that the world looks at as least, but we know actually contribute amazing gifts of God's mercy and grace. Of course, there's not just opportunities to serve in this way within our walls, um, outside of our walls through partner ministries. There's, there's opportunities to take off robes of glory and to serve. Um, one of the things that struck me about our missions conference this past year, you might remember those of you who were here on the Wednesday night for the panel uh, this past February, and we had representatives of our key ministry partners within the city. And while a couple of them told us they could use financial resources, every single one of them told us they needed volunteers. They needed people to come alongside them to serve, whether it was World Relief Memphis or Neighborhood Christian Center or Advanced Memphis or Streets Ministries or Agape Ministries. They, they needed people who would come alongside them to serve, to take off robes of glory and to bend down to care for those that the rest of the world accounts to be the least in the lost. That's, that's what Jesus is modeling for us. That's, that's what he's telling us. He says in verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If, if Jesus condescends, takes off robes of glory to come to serve, can we do any less? And, and yet such service will only happen 
as we come to see that this entire enacted parable is not just for us. It's actually about him, about Jesus. Remember last week, uh, at the, right at the end of John chapter 12, we talked about how John says that Isaiah wrote these things because he had seen Jesus' glory and spoke of him. And we noted that these things were, were Isaiah chapter 6, where there you see Jesus as this glorious God who receives the praises of the seraphim. Holy, 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 they sing. But, but not just Isaiah 6. Isaiah 53 also is quoted there. Uh, the suffering servant who comes to be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And, and we, we noted that the only way we will see the hidden God, we won't see him in his naked glory. The only way to see God is to see him in, in Jesus the crucified. Well, this entire enacted parable, it's telling us the same thing. Jesus takes off his robes, takes off his proper identity as the Lord of glory, and he sets it aside. He doesn't grasp it. He doesn't hold on to it. He doesn't trophy it. No, he takes it off. He sets it aside for a time, and he takes the position of a servant, takes up the towel, takes up the water basin, begins to serve his own people, and he cleanses them from top to bottom by his own very blood over and over again. And once he's completed his mission, he puts on his robes of glory again and receives his, his proper due because his proper identity is seen, the praises of his people and the glory of all the earth. Don't you see? The washing of, of the disciples' feet was an acting out of, of what the Apostle Paul will say later in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is already yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God,' did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the, so the place to see the hidden God, the God of glory, the, the holy, holy, holy God is at the cross. Because the Lord of glory himself set aside his robes, emptied himself, took upon himself the, the, the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death of the cross. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus knew he was returning to the Father. He knew he was returning once again to the glory that was rightfully his, that it would be restored to him. The one that the world thought was a pauper would be shown to be a prince. No, he would actually be shown to be the king of glory himself, and every knee will bow to him, and every tongue will confess him. And why does Jesus do all of this? Because he loves you. He loved you to the uttermost. He loves you all the way to the end, through the cross, through the suffering, through his death, through his burial, through his rising again, through his ascension. And even in this moment, he loves you. And he bids you welcome. And he serves you so that you might go and serve others. One of my favorite poems was written by the 17th century English poet George Herbert. 
you might be familiar with his work, his 170 poems that make up the temple. Uh, the very last poem is a poem called Love. It's actually Love Free because uh, Herbert tried twice before to speak about love, God's love, Jesus' love shown to him. But, but this last poem, which serves as the, the end and the crown of the entire book, I think he gets it exactly right. The poem goes, Love made me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first interest in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. I guess, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. And so I did sit and eat. Love bids you welcome. He feeds you till you want no more. He gives you forgiveness and righteousness and holiness. He calls you his child. All the benefits of redemption are yours. He loves you. But he also bids you to go and to serve and to follow in his pattern. Because this Jesus who loves you, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away for you. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, this love that your word tells us of, it's not unknown to us, and yet it is unknown to us. It's not unknown because we know Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We know that, and yet it is unknown because so often we're not actually fully persuaded that you bid us welcome with all of our grime and our sin and our marred eyes and marred hearts. But Lord Jesus, though we loveless be, uh, teach us yet again, but more persuade us, win us, woo us, so that we would know of your great love for us and we might live, leave this place singing and serving because we've been loved in this way. Grant us this grace we ask, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymnals. Let's turn together to number 182. Um, I'm not certain that you know uh, this tune of my song is Love Unknown, but after seven verses you will. Uh, so be listening, um, and then as you're able to pick up the tune, join in and sing as together we stand to sing 182.
receive the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. Go in the peace of God. Amen.